1: Hi, it's Wes Kosova. We're taking a break this week, so here's an episode you might have missed. And an update on this story. Since this show aired, a number of planned offshore wind projects in the northeastern U.S. have been put on hold or are in doubt, mostly because of rising costs. And that's also raised doubts about President Biden's goal of reaching 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power capacity by the end of this decade. At the same time, though, the Massachusetts project we talk about in this episode completed construction of its first wind turbine last month. And a developer of another big wind project off the coast of Virginia says it's moving ahead with its project. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back on Monday with a new big take.
0: Federal regulators made it official, Vineyard Wind will be the first large-scale offshore wind energy project in the United States. This project will generate enough electricity for about 400,000 homes. The CEO of Vineyard Wind, Lars Peterson, says this new project will kickstart the industry. Vineyard will be the first to use a new turbine that stands more than 850 feet tall, with each of its three blades stretching more than the length of a football field.
1: About 15 miles south of Nantucket, off the coast of Massachusetts, a massive new wind farm is rising out of the Atlantic Ocean. The project is expected to start delivering electricity this fall, Those turbines will bring the Biden administration closer to its goal of the U.S. generating 30 gigawatts of power from clean offshore wind by 2030. But that goal won't be easy to reach. Building those super tall wind turbines is not cheap, and some projects have faltered. Costs have gone up. Price of steel has gone up.
2: These giant towers use a lot of steel. All of a sudden, the project's costs are
1: higher than they expected. That's Bloomberg's Will Wade. He got on a big boat to check out the wind farm. And a bit later, I talked to Nick Schultz. He's a commercial diver working on this project. And I asked him what it's like to build a wind turbine in deep water.
3: Most of our day is just making sure it all goes right. Cause you know, when you pick up something that weighs a million pounds, you gotta have it as
1: safe as you possibly can. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the answer, my friend, is blowing it. Well, you know. Will, you went out to see this giant wind project. What was it like? It was really fun. I had to go to Cape Cod in the
2: summer. Like All my coworkers were like, wow, that's a real hardship assignment. Well, journalism can be tough. It is. We headed about two hours due south from Hyannis, out past Martha's Vineyard. And then when we get there, there's six monopiles sticking out of the ocean. The monopile is the foundation that they're going to attach the turbines to. Eventually, there's going to be 62 turbines, so they'll have to do 62 monopiles. And then they go out and attach the turbines. So there were six of them there, and they're sticking out of the ocean maybe 50 feet. But then a couple of miles away, they've got the substation. That thing was just huge. They needed four model piles for that, and then they built the platform on top of that. It's a couple of hundred feet up. And then the substation, and you know, when you're in the ocean, it's hard to see scale. So this thing is literally almost as big as a football field, just sitting on a platform in the middle of the ocean. So all the turbines are gonna be wired to the substation. The substation takes the electricity and it puts it on a big cable and it sends it all the way to shore.
1: And so they have these platforms, these monopiles that the turbines will go on. And then how big are the turbines themselves gonna be? I think we've all seen those things, you know, the big blades spinning.
2: Yeah, if you've ever seen a wind turbine on land, you know it's big, but the ones they make for offshore They're even bigger. They're really big. So these are going to be about 850 feet tall. And I did a little math. That works out almost exactly to the height of the Washington Monument with the Statue of Liberty stacked on top. This project is going to be 62 of them. It's about 800 megawatts of capacity. That's going to be enough to power 400,000 homes in the region. It's a big project.
1: And how long has this been under development?
2: It's been under development for a long time. They got their initial power purchase agreement
1: back in 2018. So they're just now starting to put these turbines up. How long until this thing is up and running?
2: It's supposed to be complete in early 2024. But they told me that the first ones that are going to be installed, they're going to be wiring up as soon as they can. They should be delivering electricity in October.
1: Already delivering. Wow. That seems pretty soon.
2: Yeah, it's really soon. This will be the first electricity from a large-scale U.S. offshore wind project. There are two other offshore wind projects in service in the United States, but they're really just test projects. One is near Block Island. It's just 30 megawatts with five turbines. That was the first one. And then there's another one down in Virginia. It only has two turbines. It was really just, you know, a demonstration project.
1: So I imagine that people who like to use the beach and own property along the shoreline, don't really want to look out and see giant turbines spinning. Can you see it from the shore? I mean, they're big. You could see them from a while. But I'm told that you will not
2: be able to see it from the shore.
1: We talk a lot about how we're trying to wean ourselves from natural gas, from coal, from other fossil fuels and move toward wind and solar. Why did it take so long for a project like this to get underway?
2: This has just been a slow-moving industry in the United States, and certainly since this is the first big project, it's getting a lot of attention. They all have to go through a lot of environmental reviews. You've got to go through state and federal oversight. You've got to do all of those environmental impact studies. The fishermen had plenty to say about the topic. It takes a long time to get all of the approvals that you need.
1: And there's a whole bunch of other projects also planned up and down the East Coast, is that right? Yeah, offshore wind is a big
2: component of the U.S.'s climate strategy. And there's about 17 projects that are planned, running all the way up from the Mid-Atlantic up to the Northeast. President Joe Biden has set a goal of having 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in service by 2030. So we'll see if we get there. But we're starting to hit some snags because this is such a slow-moving industry. Vineyard Wind is under construction now, and there's another project almost in the same area, South Fork Wind. It's under construction now. They'll probably be finished faster, but they won't have electricity delivered as fast, or so they say. But South Fork Wind is much smaller. But after that, nothing else is under construction, and instead, we've seen several projects trying to get out of their agreements, trying to cancel some of their contracts, trying to renegotiate their contracts. So here's the problem. The basic business model for an offshore wind project is you plan your project, then you have to get a PPA. That's a power purchase agreement. That means you've got someone onshore that's willing to buy the electricity. And they're usually run for Decades, 20, 25 years is standard. So you have a utility usually that says, we'll buy your electricity at this price for this length of time. As a developer, once you have that, you're good to go. You take that to the bank and the bank says, ah, this company we trust is promising to give you money. We'll loan you money. Now you've got the bank promising to loan you money. You can take that to your suppliers and say, we would like to buy 100 wind turbines and the bank is promising to loan us the money and the suppliers say, all right, we're all good to go. That's how it's supposed to work. What's happened here is these projects take a long time. So Vineyard Wind got its PPA in 2018. It lined up its bank, its financing, it lined up its supply deals, it's good to go. Other projects that got their PPAs later They're encountering big problems with inflation. So they got their PPAs. They started to line up their financing. When they went to line up supply deals, costs have gone up in the past 12, 18 months. Price of steel has gone up. These giant towers use a lot of steel. The supply chain has gotten all bogged down. It takes longer to get there. Components that go into all the gears and the electronics, those costs have gone up. All of a sudden, the project's costs are higher than they expected. And the developers are crunching the numbers and like, wait a minute. We promised to deliver electricity at this price. We can't deliver it at that price. Our costs have gone up. Now they're stuck. So we've seen a lot of projects that have gone back to the utilities, back to the states, and they're saying, we have a little problem here. We can't deliver the electricity that we promised to deliver, not at that price. Can we get out of that deal? And they're not getting a lot of sympathy at all. The utilities of the states are going, no, nah, no, nah, you promised us that power. We want that power. So for example, Avongrid, the developer of Vineyard Wind, has another project right in the same area. It's even bigger. It's called Commonwealth Wind. It's going to be 1.2 gigawatts. So that's about 50% bigger. The Commonwealth Wind Project agreed to pay a penalty to get out of that contract because it can't make money. They're going to try and re bid in a January auction and see if they can get a higher PPA. We'll see how that works for them.
1: When you went to them and asked them about it, what did they have to say? They said that they're hoping to find a way forward with their projects. After the break, the challenges of building more huge wind projects like this.
4: When I think about climate change, I think jobs. Almost 100 wind turbines going up off the coast of Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Jobs manufacturing 2,500 ton steel foundations that anchor these offshore wind farms to the sea floor.
1: Jobs. Will, you mention before that President Biden has this goal of 30 gigawatts of wind power. Exactly what does that mean? A gigawatt sounds big, but what does that translate to? Well, it is big. It's a lot of power. But what it translates to, it's harder to
2: measure. So, for example, vineyard wind is going to be 800 megawatts.
1: A little side note here to help wrap our brains around this. There are 1,000 megawatts in a gigawatt. So this 800 megawatt project is 80% of a gigawatt. And they say that's going to be enough for 400,000 homes in the area.
2: So keep in mind, it's in New England because a gigawatt of power in New England isn't the same as a gigawatt of power in Texas. Why is that? Texas is really hot. They use a lot of air conditioning. That's a lot of electricity. So a gigawatt there won't go as far as a gigawatt in Maine, where they don't need as much electricity.
1: So the idea is that powering an air conditioner is more than powering a light bulb. Exactly. Plus, you have to think
2: about what kind of electricity it comes from. One of my standard measures is a nuclear power plant, a big conventional nuclear power plant. Most people can probably just imagine what it looks like. Those are about a gigawatt each. But they run night and day, 24-7, almost 365 days a year. A gigawatt of wind power, they're not going to run 24-7. The best winds are usually at night, so a gigawatt of nuclear will go further than a gigawatt of wind.
1: Just because it's operating 24 hours a day.
2: Because it runs around the clock.
1: They're placing these giant turbines out in the Northeast. Why there?
2: The U.S. Northeast is one of the two best places in the world for offshore wind power, and there's two reasons for that. One, the winds are strong and consistent, and two, and this is really important, the water's not very deep. Vineyard wind's going to be in about 30 to 50 meters of water. It's like 100 to 150 feet. That is not a huge engineering challenge. When you go off to California, for example, off the whole West Coast, the water offshore gets real deep real fast. So you couldn't build an offshore wind turbine like that in 1,000 feet of water. So
1: what are they going to do about that? Is there a solution to that?
2: Yes, they're experimenting with floating wind farms, so they won't be on monopiles that are bolted to the bottom of the ocean. They're going to be literally these floating platforms with a wind turbine attached to it, and they're going to anchor them at the bottom. It's an experimental technology, but they say it's a lot easier to do because you can build it on shore and then tow it out to sea, so that should be faster and cheaper, but it's still new and unproven. And those things are going to be bobbing in the water? They will bob in the water, but they have counterweights on the bottom, so they'll bob down and bob back up. And the turbines
1: will always stay straight up
2: and down? They'll move around a little bit, but not so much that they don't work.
1: Europe has been building these wind farms for a long time. They're way ahead of the U.S. Why are they? Oh, it's really
2: simple. They don't have as much space. Europe's not as big as the United States. If you drive across the country, you're going to see so much wind farms out in the middle of the country in Iowa, Nebraska. They've got tons of space, and it's really windy there. Europe is much, especially Western Europe, it's much more dense. They don't have as much space. They had to go offshore. There's another reason why offshore wind in the U.S., especially on the East Coast, is a good idea. It's close to where the people are. All those wind farms in Iowa, very far from New York City, where there's so many people that need electricity.
1: And so then you have to run all those lines further? Yeah, we need thousands of miles
2: of transmission lines in this country. It's actually a huge problem for the renewable energy transition.
1: Are there any precautions they have to take? They're building these things in the ocean. There's a lot of wildlife all around them. Well, they're really
2: concerned about whales. They don't want the construction to disrupt the whales. Everybody loves the whales. I'm out on the boat and it's really beautiful. And I was thinking, wow, I hope we get to see some whales. And the people at the project were like, I hope we don't see whales. If we see whales, we have to stop work.
1: So actually they have to pause the project if they see whales. Yeah, no construction allowed when there's whales in the area. So how much is this big project going to cost?
2: A vineyard wing, that's about $4 billion. And that substation was like almost a quarter of it. That was like $900 million for that.
1: Will, you mentioned that there are a lot of other projects in the works up and down the East Coast. What about in those big open spaces in the middle of the country? Are we going to start to see more and more wind farms across America?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's still plenty of wind farms under development all across the country. Wind and and solar, solar takes up a lot of space, too. They're all key components of the green energy transition that the U.S. is trying to pursue. They're even planning one in the Great Lakes, uh, icebreaker wind in Lake Erie near Cleveland.
1: And how long do they think it'll take for Joe Biden's goal of 30 gigawatts of wind power to be real?
2: Well, the target's 2030. We'll
1: see if we get there. In terms of the
2: projects that are delayed right now, I don't think that they're going to be killed. I think there's enough desire I think there's enough interest from the governments and from state governments in having this clean energy. I think they're going to find a way forward. But it's going to take some time to work
1: through this. Will, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. When we come back, what is it like to go to work on the ocean floor?
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. Start your journey at stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: My name's Nick Schultz. I'm a member of Pile Drivers Local Union 56. I'm a uh, commercial diver and pile driver, and I do all kinds of marine construction.
1: So, Nick, you've worked on some of these big offshore wind projects. Your work in the water is on the kind of the infrastructure that goes beneath these giant turbines. Yes. And that's really what's been happening right now as they're preparing to start putting up the first of them. Can you describe what that work is like? I mean, you're out in the middle of the water and you're putting in these really big structures to hold giant turbines.
3: Yeah, the foundations themselves, that's our kind of work. What we do here at the pile drivers, we do the big monopiles, and those are enormous. They're like 30 feet around and in four inch thick steel, and it takes them like almost a whole day to get one in, but there's so much stuff we do in the water. Recently, I started doing what's called a big bubble curtain, and that's like to reduce sound noises for the animal life in the area. It's really like, I've never seen it before, never even done it before, and it's like one of the neater things we do because I do acoustical readings. So a bubble curtain, what exactly is that? It's a giant hose that they lay around the perimeter of the pile they're driving and they pump a large amount of air through it and it creates a continuous wall of air bubbles to the surface and it reduces the noise from the driving of the pile because it starts off at like 160 decibels and with the bubble curtain, they can get it down closer to under 100.
1: And that's when they're trying to put down the foundation by basically just pounding it into the ocean floor.
3: They use a massive hammer that generates close to 2 million pounds of force with each blow. They're trying to reduce the sound to protect the wildlife in the
1: area. And that's what they're using to stabilize these giant platforms.
3: Yeah, that's the initial foundation that these sit on. They're massive and they go into the ground probably 120 feet, 150 feet
1: what are they there for like why are they trying to reduce the sound in water sound travels like four and a half times
3: faster than in air and when the sound hits the air bubbles it slows it down so they usually put one or two of these curtains around to lessen the sound for in case there's any animals or wildlife in the area it doesn't damage anything i mean they, they have a pretty strict protocol they run where we're not allowed to work at all if they're in within a certain perimeter If they spot a whale, like all work is stopped till the whale leaves the area for at least an hour or more before they let you continue working.
1: Does that happen a lot?
3: Yeah, some days it's really frustrating because you get it all set up to go and then you can't do anything for half the day.
1: Can you describe what it's like to put one of these giant piles down?
3: The one ship on Vineyard Wind 1 is the Orion. It's like 900 feet long. It has a massive crane. They put one of these big piles into like a cradle. They stand it up with this giant cradle and then they set it on the seabed and they let it settle out. And then they swing the crane over and they put their giant hammer that then smashes it into the ground.
1: So once you have those piles down, then what happens? They have to put a cage
3: in that has sacrificial anodes to keep it from rotting.
1: Most people like me they have no idea what a sacrificial anode is. What is that?
3: <laughs> they, they attach something that's like aluminum gives up. Uh, it rots away faster than the steel will. So the aluminum goes away before the steel does. So it protects that part of it. So it keeps it from rusting and rotting. The aluminum will disappear before the steel disappears. And then they put a transition piece on, which is 87 to 90 feet tall. And that's the piece that gets it up to like a working platform. And then there's another section that goes up in the air that the turbine sits on. That's another like 200 feet tall. And then the turbine sits on top of that. And then they put the blades on after. (laughs) There's a lot to it.
1: (laughs) And what's this work like? Like when you're doing it, can you describe just what it's like to work in that environment? I imagine it's pretty unusual like most people's jobs are way different than this job (laughs)
3: yeah i mean the the, honestly the hardest part is being away from everybody because you go to work for four to ten weeks and just not being home to do your normal things or you know like i have a wife and kids i have a single mother at home while i'm out working that's probably the hardest part
1: I imagine a large part of your job just must be troubleshooting. What sorts of stuff can go wrong? Like most of
3: our day is just making sure it all goes right. Because, you know, when you pick up something that weighs a million pounds, you got to have it as safe as you possibly can. You got to look at everything a couple of times. You know, it's not like, you know, I drop a two by four building a shed. I might, you know, bruise my toe. <laughs> you drop something this big, uh, I don't want to know what happens. <laughs>
1: Well, imagine you must have some pretty strict safety protocols.
3: We do. We do. We go through 180 hours of training on top of the training we already have. We do a lot of...
1: And what is that training? What do you have to do? Like what's an example of the sort of safety training you have to do? We do like
3: a sea survival training that the Global Wind Organization puts on a 40-hour rigging course, another 24-hour rigging course, we got to be CPR to the helicopter egress training, which is people find fascinating because they turn a helicopter upside down with us in it and drop it in the water and we have to escape it as part of the training.
1: They ditch a helicopter in the ocean and you have to get out of it?
3: They have like a training center that they have like a car body of the helicopter that they do in a pool and safety divers, but they do teach you how if your helicopter
1: crashes, how to get out of it. Because that's how you get to and from the site?
3: Yeah, at, at times we have to fly in and out. Whether, like, if the ship can't make port and they have to do crew change, they'll change us out via helicopter.
1: You said that you spend, you know, weeks away. How long do you get off after you complete a shift?
3: Some of the boats are on six weeks on, six weeks off. Some of them are four weeks on, four weeks off. But it's all subject to change on schedule. Like, sometimes it's give or take, but that's generally, like, your regular rotation. We work 12 hours a day, sometimes longer every day. There's no real days off. There's always something to do.
1: You talked a bit about the safety training, but how do you learn how to do this work? Did you have to go to school for this?
3: Through my uh, union, we have an apprenticeship program. There's a few of our members that haven't gone, but almost all of them have gone to it. It's a four year training period. Um, I also went to dive school. I'm a certified commercial diver. That took me like six months also. So I probably spent four or five years training myself. On top of all our upgrades and whatnot, we get on top of it for specific projects like the wind farms. Do
1: you use diving in your
3: work? Yes. We have to uh, do some work underwater, some underwater excavating. What's that like? The first time I did it, it was a little scary because I was brand new. Probably like 10, 12 years ago, I, that's what I started doing was uh, submarine cable work.
1: When you go into the water now, are you still a little bit? Oh, now, no, I'm, I'm pretty confident.
3: But when I was new, it, you go 20, 30, 100 feet under the surface of the water, and it's a little nerve-wracking to, to begin with.
1: Yeah, I imagine. How'd you decide to get into this work? When I was younger,
3: I was... I worked as a driller for a little while and I had met some commercial divers when uh, the housing crash around 2008 started. I was having trouble finding decent employment there for a year or two. And I remember the divers telling me that they made pretty good money all the time. And I was like, well, there's water everywhere and old bridges around this country. I'm sure that'll keep me employed for a long time. And then once I got doing it, it was the variety of jobs. I like, I probably have seven jobs I do. What's the best part of your job? I like what I do. It's big. It's neat. Not a lot of people get to do it. It's, it's always an adventure.
1: Nick, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for taking the time.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to Big Take at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Virgolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend.